I just, um, for my part, want to say thank you very much for the warmth of your welcome and that it really has been a privilege to uh, be with you these, these past few days. Um, it has been a joy to be back in Northern Ireland. It's about 20 years since uh, I've been in Northern Ireland and it's been a joy to see the way in which there have been some changes uh, in Northern Ireland, um, to see some things that are exactly the same, um, to see some people that are exactly the same. Um, but your welcome has been very warm. Uh, Josh and I uh, went for a walk because this yellow thing appeared in the sky uh, today. And uh, we went to Port Rush and we did go uh, to get some ice cream. Um, and um, we bumped into lots of people who uh, said thank you. And um, please don't take that for granted. Um, if you have a leader in your church, a preacher, and they speak something that's helpful to you, please tell them. Please tell them. Again, folk have said to me, oh, folk in Northern Ireland, they don't do that. Please do it. Please do it. One of the spiritual gifts is the gift of encouragement. And preachers and speakers and leaders need that gift of encouragement. They may do the Scottish thing. They may shrink back and say, oh, it's nor me. But someone once said that encouragement is like oxygen to the soul. And one of the tragedies of the church is that we're very bad at giving each other oxygen for the soul. Encouraging each other. So thank you to those of you who have over the past few days come and said thank you, um, asked questions and, and just been very appreciative of uh, what God has said to you over these past few nights. I did say that I would give a, a shout out to Laura, uh, one of our member of staff's fiancés and some girls from Ballymena, her friends. Um, they said that they would shriek. Please pray for Josh, who's marrying Laura. Um, a number of folk have also asked um, for a few books that I would recommend. Um, Francis Chan, The Forgotten God, um, is one. Um, Surprised by the Spirit of God by Jack Deere, who uh, is a Presbyterian uh, American. Um, came from, come from a very, very um, conservative background and now is... is, is a more charismatic position. And if you want to, to track how somebody has been on that journey as they have read Scripture and reflected on the history of the church, then I recommend the books by Jack Deere. If you haven't read The Prodigal Spirit by Graham Tomlin, then I'd recommend that as well. And uh, one or two folk have said, you rattle through a, a list of passages from Scripture where the gifts of the Spirit are listed. And uh, we didn't quite get them. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12... Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and 1 Peter chapter 4. That will give you most of the gifts of the Spirit that are found in Scripture. So that's by uh, way of thanks and uh, also by way of one or two um, questions that folk have been asking. If you've got a Bible or a smartphone or a tablet with a Bible app, uh, I find the U version the best, but other Bible apps are also available. Um, you might want to turn to 1 Corinthians and chapter 1, uh, because that's what we're looking at this evening. Very much carrying on the theme that we've been uh, looking at this evening of unity and what it means for Christians to be united together, to be united in the Spirit. And we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 1 to 17. 
Paul writes these words. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Kephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, but the cross of Christ be emptied, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It was said to be President Abraham Lincoln who famously observed the following. If all the people who fell asleep in church on Sunday mornings were laid end to end, they would be a great deal more comfortable. (laughs) I don't know how you feel this evening about the church. This amazing multinational intergenerational thing called the church. There is nothing else on planet earth like the church. Thank you, Lord. I don't know about you, but I've given most of my life to the church. The church helped me to understand and to see the living reality of Jesus. In a Baptist church 20 miles south of Manchester, I saw people whose lives had been changed by a living personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I thought, I want that. I haven't got that. And age 17, I made a commitment to Christ. I've given nearly 40 years of my life to the church, 21 to my current church in Edinburgh, although it seems longer to them. The church has brought me some of the best and some of the worst moments of my life. And the church has always been like this. The church in Corinth, a city on a volcanic hill just like Edinburgh. A city very prosperous and well off, just like Edinburgh where I live and work. 
A place where music and poetry and song is celebrated, just like Edinburgh, particularly now in this month of August. A city full of diverse groups, unlike Edinburgh, apart from the month of August, when our population doubles in size because of the seven festivals that take place in the city of Edinburgh. In Corinth, there were three main groups, Greek, Roman, and Jewish. In Edinburgh just now, there are effectively people from all around the world, but in reality, two groups of people, locals and tourists. Someone last year even proposed separate pedestrian lanes on Princess Street, lanes for tourists and lanes for locals. Because as a local, you get really frustrated to be in Edinburgh in August. Because there are people from Japan and America and Canada and Australia and every nation under heaven who seemingly find it impossible to move other than this speed. They stop, they look, they point. They Google map, they look again, and they stop, and they point, and they keep on moving at this speed. Meanwhile, those of us who live in the city want to get to work. We want to get to where we're going. And somebody seriously proposed pedestrian lanes, one for tourists and one for locals. Normally in Edinburgh, you can tell tourists because at one o'clock, when the gun goes off from the castle, they're the ones who jump. The locals just, it's a gun. We have a gun every day at one o'clock. In Corinth, there were three groups, Greek, Roman, and Jewish. And the church in Corinth was just like the church in Edinburgh. It was full of problems. Sin, pride, division, heresy, snobbery, sexual immorality, and cliques. The church of Jesus Christ has always been the same. When people say to me, sometimes they do, I wish we could be more of a biblical church, just like the church in the New Testament. I'm tempted very often to say, have you read the New Testament? Do you know what the church was like in the New Testament? Do you know why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth? and Ephesus, and Galatia, and Philippi, in the way that he did? Do you know why John and Peter wrote their letters to the churches they were writing to? Do you really want us to be a biblical church? A church like the one found in the pages of the New Testament? Some people say, well, I want our church to be bigger. I always remember a friend of mine called James, a very, very posh Edinburgh man, who simply looked at me and said, well, it's very simple, Dave. The more people you have in church, the more sin. That's a typical optimistic Scottish outlook. But he's absolutely right. Remember being perplexed a few years ago in another church, um, Destiny Church, Edinburgh, a fantastic church that has five congregations throughout the city. They now have planted 400 churches in the last 20 years across the world. Um, Pentecostal church, fantastic church. And after a while, Pete, the senior pastor of Destiny in Edinburgh, uh, we were having coffee one day and he said, uh, I think I'm doing something right. 
I said, what do you mean? Well, he said, people have started to leave my church. And I said, that's not normally a sign that you're doing something right. He said, no, no, because we're reaching out to people who are drug addicts, because we're reaching out to people who are prostitutes, because we're reaching out to the types of people that the church normally doesn't have in its doors, people are coming to me and saying, I can't stay in this church. There's too many people who are sinful in it. I said, Pete, do you not just say to them, what Bible do you read? Isn't that good news that people who know that they're sinful are coming into your church? He said, yes, but it's great, Dave. They're going to yours. (laughs) If you read 1 and 2 Corinthians... You will see all the problems and issues that the Apostle Paul was addressing. Now the Apostle Paul loved this church in Corinth. He'd stayed there for 18 months, planting that church in Corinth, nurturing it, helping it to grow. And now he writes these two letters from Ephesus in the middle of his two and a half year stay there, planting that church that we looked at a couple of nights ago, to this church in Corinth. And he begins, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, with a standard beginning of a letter in the ancient world. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. But then what he writes next is significant. To the church of God in Corinth. Do you see what he doesn't write? He doesn't write to the Corinthian church. He writes to the church of God in Corinth. That's a very different and specific way of looking at the church. What in essence he is saying is that there is only one church in Corinth. There are lots of groups. There are lots of households. There are lots of what we might call congregations or assemblies. But there is only one church. Do you know that when Jesus looks at Edinburgh, he only sees one church? church. When he looks at Dublin, he sees one church. When he looks at Belfast, he sees one church. When he looks at Ballymena, he looks at one church. When he looks at Coleraine, he sees one church. The tragedy is that when we look at the church in Corinth or the church in Edinburgh or the church in Belfast or the church in Coleraine or the church in Derry or wherever it is you come from, we don't see one church. Or if we hear the words that God only sees one church, we go, yes, of course he does. God only sees one church. That's my church. We think that there are different churches. We speak about the fact that there are different churches in a town, in a village, in a city. But God only sees one church 
in the place where you live. He sees one church with different expressions, different ways of worshipping, different buildings perhaps, different leadership structures that suit different personalities and different theologies and, and different ways of understanding the church. Paul refers to the church as those sanctified and called out. That word called out is the word ecclesia, from which we get the word ecclesiastical. It meant a public gathering, a people called out for a specific purpose. Josh told me these past few days that that word ecclesia is a political word. It was the word used to describe the, the council in Athens or any group that had a particular purpose in the ancient world. It was a, a group of people called out for a specific purpose. Actually, it's the same word that we in Scotland, and I think too in Northern Ireland, get the word Cayley from. Is that how you think of your church? As a Cayley? People called out for a particular purpose. People who are sanctified, set apart, but people who are called out. And Jesus only sees one church in your city, in your town, in your village. Now the tragedy, if we're honest, is that there are many churches in our towns. There are many churches in our villages. There are many churches in our cities. Scotland, I suspect like Northern Ireland, is riddled with a history of division in the church. The history of the church in Scotland is a history of division. There's a story of a Scotsman who was shipwrecked on a desert island for a year. And being Scottish and being hardworking and being industrious, because anything that was important apparently came from Scotland and was invented by a Scot. Um, during the 12 months that he was on the desert island before a ship going past picked him up, when the people came ashore to pick him up and take him back onto their big ship, they were amazed to see what he'd achieved in that one period of 12 months that he'd been shipwrecked on the desert island. They were amazed to see that he'd built quite a large house to live in. And next to it, they were a bit puzzled, but he'd, he'd built a shop. Well, he was a Scot, so he wanted to sell stuff. Um, he didn't go in the shop because he was a Scot, so he didn't go to buy stuff. But they were also intrigued that there were two other buildings on the island, and they said, what are these? And he said, ah, well... Those are my two churches. And they said, what? Why have you built two churches? He said, well, there's one to go to and one not to go to. <laughs> now, I think that the history of the church in Northern Ireland may not be as bad as the history of the church in Scotland when it comes to division, but perhaps it is. And we have to be honest, as we did earlier on, and repent of attitudes that we have had towards each other. Where we have presumed that we are the only show in town. That we are the church, really, that Jesus loves most. 
that we are the church in Edinburgh or Belfast or Dublin or Ballymena or wherever it is you go to church. Remember again that book, that letter to the church in Galatia, that it's written to a Celtic church and that it addresses the sin of legalism, but it also addresses the sin of division. There is something within the Celtic soul that defaults very quickly to legalism and that defaults very quickly to division. Secondly, chapter 1 and verses 4 to 9. The church needs you and you need the church. Paul says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. You have been enriched in every way. You have every spiritual gift, he says in verse 7. Now what does that mean? Well, remember again that these verses are plural. They're not individualistic, singular verses. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And to the church in Corinth, he is saying, you have been enriched in every way. You have every spiritual gift. He's not writing to individual Christians and saying, you have been enriched in every way. You have every spiritual gift. He's saying, as the body of Christ, as the church of Christ in Corinth, you have every spiritual gift because the church is the body of Christ. Jesus demonstrated all the gifts of the Holy Spirit because he was Jesus, because he was God. Well, if the Spirit of Jesus lives in the church and the church is the body of Christ, then the whole church has every spiritual gift. And that means that your church, just as the church in Corinth, has been enriched in every way. There is within your church every spiritual gift to one degree or another. And as I said last night, your responsibility is to find out as an individual what gifts of the Holy Spirit God has given to you and how you can use them and express them in the life of the church and also where you live, where you work, where you stay, in your relationships, in your friendships. Not just in the church, but also out in society, in the world, in community. Thirdly, Paul says, verses 8 and 9, it is God's church, not yours or mine. I will, he will keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord? The church of Jesus Christ does not belong to you. The church of Jesus Christ does not belong to me. When I went to P's and G's 21 years ago, I determined one thing. P's and G's would not be known as Dave Richards Church. P's and G's would not be known as Dave Richards Church. Because P's and G's is not Dave Richards Church. 
For me, alarm bells start to ring when I hear the name of the pastor being used as a label for who that church belongs to. When the name of the senior pastor is put before the name of the church. The cult of the celebrity pastor, particularly in North America, I find just bizarre. Remember the words of John Ortberg uh, remarking that if the church down the road is growing and your church isn't, and if as a church leader you get jealous, just remember this. That pastor, that church leader, that preacher is simply doing one thing. He's getting more people to die to sin than you are. That's all that's going on if church growth is happening healthily. More people are dying to sin more regularly in that church than in yours. Jim Collins, the author of Built to Last, Great to Good, Great by Choice, etc., a management consultant, he said this about a company, about a charity, about an organization, but also about a church. An organization isn't great until it's great without its leader. And it's interesting to reflect on the way in which Jesus worked so that when he left, even though he was sending his Holy Spirit, he left an organization that would actually grow and grow and grow over the next 2,000 years. Exponentially, far beyond what it was when physically, at least, he left them. It's God's church. It's not your church and it's not my church. Again, alarm bells ring for me when I hear about church leaders trying to introduce change and they're greeted by opposition and they're greeted with words like, I was here in this church before you. I've seen four ministers off and I'll see you off as well. Because that mentality is someone saying, this is my church. It's not your church. It's God's church. You know, really, if if things are, are moving as they should, there should always be something in any church service that you find deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And that applies to me as well. Even this week, there will should have been something at some point. Don't all form a line to tell me what it is. But at some point in the evening that we've had so far this week. Even though we come from a diversity of backgrounds, even though we've celebrated tonight this diversity and this unity, there should be at some point something that really annoys you. Apart from my preaching. Something that you don't like. Because something else will frustrate somebody else with a different personality and a different theology. If every week you sit in church and church is just the way you like it, it may well be that the Holy Spirit has departed from your church. Because church is not about you. And it's not about what you like. Church is not your church. And church is not my church. In verse 10, fourthly, Paul says, if it's God's church, be united. 
I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with each other in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. I love the way Paul then repeats my brothers and sisters. He's a bit like a sort of a school teacher. He says it first there in verse 10. He repeats it again in verse 11. You can almost hear him sort of going, my brothers and sisters. You've let yourselves down. You've let me down. You've let Jesus down. And he appeals to them. Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels amongst you. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another one, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Kephas. Still another, I follow Christ. You see, in the church in Corinth, there weren't those three groups. In the church in Corinth, there were actually four groups. Paul, Apollos, Peter, Kephas, and Christ. Each probably for good reasons. Paul, the person who'd founded and planted that church, maybe they had a strong personal link with the Apostle Paul. Then Apollos, who was from Alexandria in Egypt, somebody who was more intellectual even than the Apostle Paul, somebody who would appeal to some in Corinth who were really intellectual, and that's what they wanted from their church leader. Then there was Peter. Peter, who certainly in British terms probably came from Yorkshire. He saw things very clearly, black and white. If he said something, that was the way it was. I'm the Apostle Peter, and I'm going to stay with you for the rest of my life until I'm challenged. And then I'll give up and say, I never knew thee. That's what Peter was like. Again, strong, charismatic personality would appeal to other people. And then there's this fourth group that sounds really, really spiritual. This group that says, oh, we belong to Christ. And it sounds so good. And it sounds so spiritual. We're in Jesus' church. Do you know opposite our house where we live in Edinburgh, there is actually a church that calls itself the True Jesus Church. And for years... They believed that they were the only Christians on the whole of this planet. There was another congregation, I think, in Sunderland. And there were two congregations where they'd come from in Hong Kong. And they genuinely believed, Pentecostal Christians, good Bible-believing Christians, that they were the only Christians that existed in the entire world. And that if Jesus were to come back, and if Jesus were to go to church on a Sunday, would Jesus go to church on a Sunday, or would Jesus go to church on a Saturday? Discuss. (laughs) Well, if Jesus were to go to church, there would be no doubt as to which church he would go to. Of course, he would go to the true Jesus church. Imagine what it was like for me for the first 10 years of living in Edinburgh. Every day I went to church, every day I went to the church office, I had to walk past this sign saying, True Jesus Church. After I'd been there for about 10 years, words started to seep out. They've admitted they're wrong. 
they think there might be other Christians in the world. They did what we did this evening. They repented of their attitude towards other Christians. You see, it sounds very spiritual. We're for Christ. We're in Jesus' church. But the implication is clear. We're the real Christians. Because we're in Jesus' group. We're in Jesus' team. We're the real Christians. Never mind Paul. Never mind Peter. Never mind Apollos. We're the real Christians. We belong to Christ. And there's this debate and dispute about baptism. See, it's been around for a while. Interesting to note that Jesus never baptized anyone. In John chapter 4 and verse 2, we're told that Jesus never baptized anybody. He got his disciples to do it. We're not told why, but I suspect the reason Jesus never baptized anybody was that he knew what we're like. Can you imagine what it would be like to be baptized by Jesus? (laughs) I was baptized by Jesus. You may have been baptized by a Baptist or a Presbyterian or properly by an Anglican. (laughs) But I was baptized by Jesus. That's why I think Jesus never baptized anybody. Because he knew what the people who would have been baptized by him would have been like. Now we not, may not be so crass. We may, may not be so crude. We may not be so arrogant outwardly. But if we're honest, you don't have to rub, scratch very hard. And underneath the surface, we're really convinced that we're right. We're Anglican. We're Presbyterian. We're Baptist. We're Methodist. We're Vineyard. We're free church. Whatever denominational label you put to it, you don't have to scratch or rub very hard and find that deep down, really, we think we are right. And we are the real church. So if only Christians would worship like we do. If only Christians would sing the hymns that we do. If only Christians would sing the modern worship songs that we do. Or if only Christians would read the translation of the Bible that we read. Or if only Christians would use liturgy like we do. Or celebrate communion like we do. Or structure their church like we do. Or have men in leadership like we do. Or women in leadership like we do. If only their view on the Holy Spirit was the same as our view on the Holy Spirit. If only their view on the second coming was the same as our view on the second coming. If only our view on X and Y and Z and A and B and C and D were the same as ours, then they would be real Christians like we are. Because we're the true Jesus church. And there are Anglican versions and there are Baptist versions, and there are Vineyard versions, and there are Methodist versions, and there are Presbyterian versions. Because really deep down, we think we are the real deal. Now, of course, theological convictions are important. Theological convictions matter. I believe that. And I believe that mine are absolutely right. Of course I do. 
But I think my favorite, my favorite quote of all time from any theologian was from a guy called Michael Polanyi. He, saw, he said, Lord, help me to know those things about you that I know to be true while admitting at the same time that I might be wrong. You see, if we limit God to our understanding, if we limit God to our doctrinal language, which is just our interpretation of somebody who is immortal, invisible, who is beyond us, who is bigger than us, who is mystery, who is majesty, who is the creator of the universe. And if we reduce God to a a, a limited God and an understanding that we can understand, we are in danger of limiting God himself. As somebody once said, let God be God. Paul says, agree with each other. Literally, he says, say the same thing. Fit together. Not uniformity, but unity. It's different. He asks, verse 10, for no divisions. He asks in verse 11, for no quarrels. Actually, it's a very weak translation to say no quarrels. Literally, it means no factions or raging battles. No factions in churches. No raging battles in churches. David Pryor was a church leader in Oxford in South Africa. And he said this, When a Christian or a group of Christians become totally absorbed with one aspect of the truth, to the neglect, exclusion, or denial of the whole truth as it is in Jesus, then the danger point has been reached. Now the reality is that we all do disagree on stuff. We disagree on water baptism. We disagree on the work of the Holy Spirit. We may disagree on spiritual gifts. We disagree perhaps on whether to have bishops or no bishops, church structures. These used to be the lines in the sand. Now, in the evangelical church, in the UK and Ireland, it's more likely to be your view perhaps on substitutionary atonement. That, sadly, was the issue upon which Spring Harvest and Word Alive that we heard about earlier divided upon. Or it might be perhaps something like the role of men or women in the leadership positions within a church. Or increasingly, and I fear, sadly, this is becoming the defining issue, is where you stand on issues around human sexuality. It's not a doctrinal issue. You won't find it in the creeds. But this is now becoming the sort of litmus test of whether you're sound or unsound. Whether you're an evangelical or not an evangelical. Now I hold to a conservative view. I hold to a non-affirming view. I believe marriage is between a man and a woman. But we have to find a way as Christians of agreeing to disagree agreeably. When a secondary issue for me becomes a primary issue for you, how are we going to disagree with each other? In Edinburgh, we meet regularly as leaders of evangelical churches. Now, we don't agree on everything. There are some things, many things, upon which we disagree violently. But we have agreed to speak well of each other in public. We will disagree with each other in private. We will have long, 
heated, charged theological discussions. That spear will come in handy. (laughs) But in public, we speak well of each other. So I will speak well of Carubbers and Charlotte and Bellevue and St. Mungo's Belerno and Central Church and Destiny Church, even though on many things I will disagree with them. And I know that my brothers and sisters in those churches will speak well of me. In private, they may ask me for lunch, they may ask for a coffee, and they may say, Dave, what the? And I go, yeah, I know. And we'll disagree. But in public, we speak well of each other. Finally, Paul says, verses 16 and 17, remember what is important. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul reminds them, who baptizes you is not important. The amount of water used is not important. Do you know in the early church they used to baptize in sand? Get out of that one, Baptists. Obviously, people were saying that people baptized by Paul were more spiritual than others. He remembers, he said, um, I I think, Heather, he's probably about our age because he can't remember who he's baptized. He says, I remember baptizing Crispus and Gaius and the family of, of, of Stephanus. But you can imagine Paul going, who else did I baptize? I don't think I baptized anybody else. Heather was telling us this morning that she, she, I'm going to tell this joke about you. She told us over tea this, this evening that she actually had to Google What is the word for when you can't remember something? (laughs) So in the Bible readings in the mornings, you're in very safe hands, let me assure you. But the Apostle Paul is getting to that stage of life where he can't remember. And he says, well, I remember baptizing him. I remember baptizing him. And I remember baptizing that household. But after that, it's all a bit blurry. I can't remember who I baptized. And Paul says in verse 17, it's not about who baptizes you. Because I'm not sent, Paul says, to baptize people. I am sent to preach the gospel. I am sent to preach the gospel. Paul is saying it's about the gospel. It's about the cross. Because at the foot of the cross, as is often said, it is level ground. And God will always be and should always be bigger than our doctrines and creeds, our preferences or our interpretations. He is God. There's a lovely quote from Oswald Chambers who at one stage in his life said this to a friend. Never make a doctrine out of your own experience. Let God be as original with other people as he has been with you. As we've been looking at the work of the Holy Spirit over these past few nights and in the morning Bible readings, one of the things that strikes me again and again when you look at the work of the Holy Spirit, particularly in the Acts of the Apostles, is that you cannot pin the Holy Spirit down. There is no formula for predicting how the Holy Spirit works. 
So in the Acts of the Apostles, we find the Holy Spirit coming upon people, sometimes with the laying on of hands. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes without the laying on of hands. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes after water baptism. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes before water baptism. Sometimes the Holy Spirit's coming is accompanied with the gift of speaking in tongues. Sometimes the coming of the Holy Spirit, and this is news for Pentecostals, is accompanied without the gift of speaking in tongues. The one that really gets me as a preacher is in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is preaching to the household of Cornelius. It says in Acts chapter 10, while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit came. Peter did not get to finish the talk he had prepared. That is outrageous. <laughs> All the time and effort and thought and prayer that Peter had put into his talk and the Holy Spirit descends upon Cornelius' household halfway through the talk. Some of you are even now thinking, now Lord, come, please. <laughs> You cannot pin the Holy Spirit down. There is no formula for how the Spirit works. You need to allow the Holy Spirit to be the Holy Spirit because he's God. Jesus talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he said it's, 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 like, it's like the wind. You see where it's come from and you see where it's going. But you can't pin it down. Remember when I was about 15, 16 and we used to have a dog. I remember one autumn uh, going into the back garden with, with, with Brutus. Um, he was a very sort of classy dog. Um, he was called Brutus. And uh, playing with, with, with Brutus as he tried to catch leaves. If you've ever watched a dog try to catch leaves in the autumn, they sort of get, it was a sheepdog, a, a collie. So he'd get down and he'd wait for the leaves. But this, see, the thing was, Brutus could never predict where the wind was coming from and where the wind was going. So he could never be there for when the leaves jumped up. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is like a wind. You can see where he's come from and you can see where he's going, but he's unpredictable. Please allow God to be as original with other people as he has been with you. And very quickly... If you do fall out with people at church, imagine that that might happen. How are you to handle it? Well, in a really good book written about 25 years ago, Joseph Nye, in his book, A Survivor's Guide to Church, wrote some lessons on how to leave a church well. He said, firstly, never leave a church to go it alone. Secondly, never leave a church in anger or hurt. If you are going to leave a church, please talk to somebody. As some of you know, in the church that I lead, um, we, we went through a building project. It was a massive building project. It cost, I'll say it quietly, £6.9 million. The church has given £6.7 million. If anybody wants to chip in with the extra 200000 just to make it up, that'd be nice. Um, but it was controversial. We put a balcony back in on three sides. We doubled the capacity of the church. We took the pews out, all of them. I know, shocking, shocking. Is it a real church? I don't know. We did all sorts. And it has just improved and, and, and made it so much more effective for what we do as a church. Now our building works for us rather than against us. 
But there were some people, when we started to talk about this, 16, 17, 18 years ago, that came to us and said, we just don't think it's of God. We don't think it's right that a church should spend that amount of money on a building. And we just can't get behind it. And I had sympathy with them. And you know, of about the 20 people who left the church over the building project, and out of the 700 who were there with us at the time, 20 wasn't bad. 15 left really, really well. Because they came to us as leaders and they said, we can't get behind this. We can't support it. And I said, I respect that. And I respect you coming to tell me. But you know what? For the next three or four years, this building project is going to be right at the heart of who we are as a church. We're going to be asking people for money. We're going to be moving out of the church building. And we were out of the church building for two and a half years. And when we come back into this new church building, you're going to be faced every single Sunday with a church that you did not give to. That's going to be too difficult for you. So I think for your integrity and our integrity, it's probably best that you find another church. And 15 of them said, yep, you're absolutely right. And now when I see them around Edinburgh, when I see them at an inter-church gathering, when I see them something in the street perhaps, they say, hi Dave, how's it going? And I say, it's going well. They say, how's P's and G's? I said, it's gone really well. They said, great, hear fantastic things. I said, how's your new church? They say, it's better. It's better than yours. <laughs> I'm at destiny. And I go, great, that's fine. Because <laughs> he's sending me those people who think it's too sinful. <laughs> but we talk and we laugh and we bless each other. The ones that I could do nothing about were those that left in silence and those that left in anger and those that left in hurt. And those five or six people that left like that, I don't know what to say to them and they don't know what to say to me when I do see them around the city. Bill Hybels, talking about members of staff that leave church, said this, how you leave is how you'll be remembered. And that's true for people who leave churches as well. Just recently, I met with a couple who have agonized about leaving their church. It's taken them months to come to the decision. Their hearts have broken over it. They're a mature Christian couple. They're both retired and they have wept over their church. And when they came to see me to tell me that they were joining P's and G's, they wept. I didn't take that as an encouraging sign that they were weeping as, as they thought about joining us. But actually they weren't weeping because they were joining P's and G's. They were weeping about the church that they were leaving. And they have sought to leave as well as they can. They have made every effort to keep the unity through the bond of peace in the spirit. But eventually they felt they had no option. But even now, they're really careful about how they speak about their previous church and how they speak about the leadership in that church. You know, when Christians fall out with each other, when Christians speak badly of each other, when Christians tweet badly of each other, and social media is such a toxic place for Christians, then God is hurt, the Spirit is grieved, and the Father weeps. We will never be this side of eternity in agreement on everything. We won't be one this side of eternity. 
But in eternity, we will be united with Christians of every tribe and tongue and nation and ethnicity and denominations and streams and people who wave flags. And in heaven, there will be no Baptists. In heaven, there will be no Anglicans. In heaven, there will be no Methodists. In heaven, there will be no Presbyterians. In heaven, there'll be nobody from the vineyard. There'll be no free Presbyterians in heaven because denominations will have ceased to be. We will just be Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. But until then, we're to be God's visual aid, the church, filled, led, and empowered by the Spirit of God, the very presence and person of God himself, working in you and working in me. Let's stand and pray together. And again, we're going to do as we have on previous evenings. We're just going to stand and be quiet, be silent. I think if you have um, a a child um, in the groups, you may have to slip away during this so to go and pick them up. I, I apologize for that. But for the rest of us, if we can just keep in an attitude of prayer as parents leave us to go and pick up their children. And again, as we've prayed each night, This ancient, ancient prayer of the church. Come, Holy Spirit. If it's helpful for you, and again, this isn't formulaic. The Holy Spirit doesn't come only when people put their hands out as if they're holding a tray. God's bigger than that. But if it's helpful for you, hold your hands out. Just as a sign between you and God that you want to receive. We say again, Lord, come, Holy Spirit. We invite you afresh into this place. We invite you afresh into our hearts, into our lives, into our minds, into our souls. This evening, we invite you afresh into our attitudes as we think about other churches, as we think about other Christians. We ask your forgiveness for our arrogance, for our narrow-mindedness. When we've talked down or pejoratively about other Christians or churches, 
when we've dismissed them, when we've gossiped about them, sneered at them, rejoiced in failure, And Holy Spirit, we're asking you to come this evening to restore, to heal, to bring repentance and to bring redemption. Particularly this evening, I want to pray for people who have been hurt by the church or hurt by church leaders. Somebody like me has said something or done something or perhaps not done something that really hurt you, that wounded you. And even now, Months, years, even decades later, it shaped the way in which you think about church. It shaped the way in which you think about God. It shaped the way in which you think about yourself. So Holy Spirit, would you continue to meet with us Just a reminder again that if you'd find it helpful, members of the prayer team will be either side of the stage. And if you'd appreciate somebody praying for you or with you to be filled with the Spirit, to receive a spiritual gift, or perhaps to be prayed for for healing, physical healing, emotional healing, or perhaps this evening, perhaps particularly relational healing in the way that you relate to the church then we just invite you to come forward as we respond in song. In Jesus' name, amen.